the gospel writers inked words onto the scrolls that they originally wrote on, and they, they wrote some things that were permanent, something that were, uh, some things that were supposed to last for all time. And there are these sacraments, communion and, and baptism. And some people think that communion or the Lord's Supper, the Eucharist it's called, and baptism are lifeless rituals that you just go through. They're just things that you do, hoops you jump, TPS reports you fill out that God requires, and, and they're not really sure why. But in this series, we're talking about why these things are so important. And when you understand the why behind the symbolism, you go, ah, oh, okay. These have meaning for my life that, of course, in a spiritual sense is always important. But even in the times we live in, they take on greater importance. And so last week when we talked about communion, we talked about living in a divided society and how we are divided on purpose by people who benefit from that. And that's not what community or communion means. God calls us to something better than that and to do what is right by everybody. And today, as we talk about baptism, there are lots of things, of course, that we could draw from baptism. But one of the meanings is incredibly eerily relevant to the times that we live in. So over the past few years, it's not, it's not news to you uh, that we have been living in a time of increasing polarization and it's, it's, it's getting even more alarming now, isn't it? We're, we're seeing more political commercials with guns and, and th- this violent rhetoric. And, and of course, people stormed the Capitol last year and, and we wonder, are there consequences to that? A lot of those people have faced consequences, but some haven't, and we wonder where are we headed in this country, and, and of course, we mentioned this last week, that you've had conversations with people, maybe people in your family, maybe friends of yours, people in a church you used to be a part of, and you talked with them, and you're like, wait a second, I don't think we're living in the same reality here. I, I don't think we're seeing life and other people the same way. It seems like we just have completely different perceptions of reality. You know, in America is now we're split into propaganda groups with so-called cable news channels and websites and social media just spreading propaganda and lies and 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 once again it's on purpose and it's splitting us up into tribalism where they're just different pockets of America that are just not living in the same reality. And tribalism it's it's the idea that there, we have this need to belong in a group. We have the need to belong as human beings. Somewhere in our evolving, we discover that life is better if you're in, in, in groups. You're safer if you're in groups. And so we want to belong. And sometimes a person can, can choose to believe things or choose to act in ways they wouldn't normally believe and act because they want to belong. If they were just by themselves, they wouldn't act like this. But they want to belong in a group that tells them this is how they should act. And so... They do that. And on October 3rd, 2018, when all of this was really beginning to ramp up, Adam Berinsky, the Mitsu Professor of Political Science at MIT and the director of the MIT Political Experiments Research Lab, was quoted in an article called Truth, Lies, and Tribal Voters. At MIT, scholars are taking a rational look at increasingly irrational political discourse. And here's what Adam Berinsky says. Having fact checkers is great because we should have a sense of what is true and not true in the world, says Berinsky. But just the existence of fact-checkers alone is not going to ensure that the truth wins out. After all, he adds, because people do have partisan and tribal loyalties, they don't give rumors up just because they're false. (laughs) In other words, 
there are people who need to belong. There's, their lack of a sense of identity produces such a, a need to belong in a group that they don't care if they have to pretend to believe false things in order to belong to the group. They don't, have to, they don't care if they have to believe lies, things that are verifiably false, as long as they belong. It's the need to know who we are, to, to know our identity, and to belong. Perhaps that goes a long way in explaining this dynamic where we encounter people. We're like, how could they believe that? It's so, it's so ridiculous. They're, yeah, their favorite TV channel told them that, but still, maybe this helps to make sense. And the first time I ever thought about this was in a conversation with Brian McLaren, actually, who, who wrote a book that we studied recently. And I was getting to hang out with him a few years ago, and he said, you know, when you, when you go through a theological journey, when you're kind of changing or examining what you believe and kind of trying to figure that out, and he said it's not just about heady theological questions. He's like, that's the tip of the iceberg. What's, what's really going on in a lot of people's lives is people realize, you know what, if I, if I, if I evolve in my views on a certain issue, I'm going to have a strained relationship with my family from now on. Dinners are going to be awkward. My friends and and all my social media friends who post all this stuff, they're going to think I'm weird now. They're going to think I'm a traitor because I've betrayed the cause of all the, all the ridiculous things we're supposed to believe and do. And he said, it's, it's not just about questions, but it's about the social implications of getting honest and thinking for yourself. And that's true for all of us. We're pressured to believe certain things, say certain things, act in certain ways to fit in. And, and people who have a strong sense of identity, they know who they are, they're, they're better able to resist this irrational cult-like movement that we're seeing in the United States. And baptism is all about identity and belonging. Now, obviously, it's, just, it's not just about that. Some people have happier families than others. Maybe, maybe you're watching this morning, you're here, and, and things are not going well in your family relationships or with your significant other or with children, adult children, or, or children you're trying to raise, and, and you're just struggling. Some, some families are happier than others. Some people have, have family members who they feel like have deserted them who have been absent, and there's this hole that that leaves, and it causes them to question their identity, and they kind of go through life wondering, do I really belong? Am I valuable? You can feel lonely even around other people. How many of you realize that? You can feel lonely in a marriage. There's a, there's a song, uh, this, this dates me from the 90s, but it was a song by Third Eye Blind, 1995, anybody? And there's, there's a song that went, uh, I'd never felt alone until I met you. Ouch. That's, that happens. That's real for some people. And that's a painful place to be. If that's you, by the way, we're starting a relationship series in a couple of weeks. And so there's hope, but that's real. And baptism is a part, it's about being a part of a family. Not being alone, knowing who you are. Knowing whose you are. Knowing who your family is. Is. And so what I'm going to do is, like last week, I'm going to get, kind of speed through some info, give you some basic info about baptism and some factoids, and then we're going to move in to the meaning of baptism, especially right now in 2022 America. So there are different ways to baptize people. They're called modes of baptism. 
Basically, you're, you're putting water on a person. It's not rocket science. And there are different ways to do that, modes of baptism. So real quick, just wanted to, as an aside, throw this in. Here is one way to, baptism, uh, to baptize somebody from probably the best baptism movie scene I've ever seen. This is from Nacho Libre. Let's watch. I'm a little concerned right now about your salvation and stuff. How come you have not been baptized? Because I never got around to it, okay? I don't know why you always have to be judging me. Because I only believe in science. But tonight, we are going up against Satan's caveman. And I just thought it would be a good idea if you... Felicidades. Yeah, there's one way. So sometimes a man has to wear stretchy pants. I love, love, that, love that movie. So, um, modes of baptism. You have immersion. You have pouring and sprinkling. Once again, it's not rocket science. You, immersion kind of has a symbolism that we'll talk about here in a second, but pouring and sprinkling are other ways. Um, traditions that practice infant baptism. They're going to sprinkle water on the head of the, the, the baby who's being baptized. If a person is ill and they're not able to be immersed, if they're an adult and they're not able to be immersed, you might sprinkle water on them. The... Uh, Preferred mode of baptism with adults is probably immersion, but that depends on the tradition that you come from. If you grew up Catholic, you might see infant baptism with a baptistry and the priest or, or mainline traditions, Methodist, Lutheran, Presbyterian. If you come from a more Baptist tradition, they're called Baptists because they believe in immersing adults. And, and so there's three modes of baptism. A little bit about the history of baptism. Back, uh, baptism was practiced by uh, Jewish people, before uh, Christians began baptizing, when a person wanted to convert to the Jewish faith, the people would be immersed once in a ritual bath called a mikvah, a baptismal pool. And here's a picture of a, a mikvah I took in Israel. I got a chance to go to Israel in January of 2012. And this is in a place called Qumran. It's at the base of the mountains next to the Dead Sea. So if, if we could lift the camera here, you would see the Dead Sea in the background. And uh, Qumran was the home of a, a sect, a group of, of uh, Jewish uh, monks, essentially, called the Essenes. There is some speculation that perhaps John the Baptist was a member of the Essenes. And you can see why there might be that speculation. There are baptismal pools, mikvahs, all throughout this village. And, and they wanted uh, to be clean. They wanted to be pure. And so... And walking down into the mikvah and immersing themselves was a symbol of purifying themselves and washing away sin and being pure and, and holy before God. And, and then John the Baptist came along, who lived during the time of Jesus. He baptized people in the Jordan River. In Israel, he preached to large crowds of people who came out into the desert to hear him preach. It wasn't just about religion, by the way. There was also a tie-in with politics. They were occupied by the Roman Empire. And John taught the people, if, if we purify ourselves before God and we get right with God and we want to live good lives and do what's right by everybody, it's not just about my own personal holiness, but living in a way in which uh, justice and righteousness are practiced in society and we can create a better life for everybody, maybe God will kick out the Romans. 
And so people came out into the desert to hear John preach, and they were baptized by John in the Jordan River. When you go to Israel, some people, uh, you know, they hear about the Jordan River in, in the Bible, and they expect it to be this amazing, awe-inspiring river. It's basically a little creek. And, and this is uh, the traditional site of John the Baptist's baptism of Jesus in the Jordan River. That's my father-in-law, actually, um, talking to some people about baptism when he's a pastor. And when we went in 2012, there were people that he baptized in the Jordan River. And, and so Jesus was baptized by John the Baptist, which causes some questions. You know, if Jesus is the Son of God, why would Jesus be baptized by John? And, and we're told in Scripture, well, it, it meant that Jesus affirmed what God was saying through John, calling people back to God to, to live lives of justice and mercy and to share with those who have need, John the Baptist said, to live righteously, which means to do right by, uh, by everybody. There is some speculation in the Bible scholarship world that perhaps Jesus was hanging out with John the Baptist before Jesus entered his public ministry. And then Jesus gives the Great Commission, another mention of baptism in scripture that's important. After his death and resurrection, Jesus gave his followers a permanent way of identifying followers of Jesus. When people became followers of Jesus, they publicly show that by being baptized. We read in Matthew 28 what's called the Great Commission. Jesus says, go into all uh, the world. I have it up here, up here on the screen, I believe. Game to them and say, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And surely I'm with you always to the very end of the age. And so when people want to follow Jesus, it, you know, the kind of the next step is that they are baptized. We don't believe that baptism is a requirement for salvation. But it's something that Jesus gave us. A sacrament. You know, something inked permanently that we would do for all time. And so that's why we baptize people. We had a great time baptizing people a couple months ago out here in the courtyard. And we'll do that again soon. If you're interested in being baptized... You can always info or email me at info at wellchurch.org and we can give you information about that. And then one more thing real quick. There's the question of infant baptism that comes up. Who should be baptized? Depending on the tradition you come from, like I said, they may baptize infants or they may baptize adults. The well is a non-denominational church. We really are made up of people of all kinds of different backgrounds. And we honor the tradition that people came from here. So if people come from a, a tradition that baptizes infants, we'll do that. If they come from a tradition that baptizes adults, we'll do that. Now, why? Some of you have been taught that if you baptize an infant, that's just like sacrilege. Why? How could you do that? Baptism doesn't save anybody. Contrary to what you may have heard, no Christian denomination believes that baptism saves people. God does that. That's the grace of God in people's lives, the spirit of God indwelling a person. That, that's what brings a person to salvation. Baptism doesn't save people. So for those who come from a tradition that baptizes adults only, they believe in making a personal decision to follow Jesus first, and then, and then they make a decision to be baptized. That's great. There's nothing wrong with that. In the baptism of infants, the parents, the guardians, whoever is presenting the infant is saying, I want to raise this child to follow Jesus. And so we're presenting them to be baptized, but it's contingent on this child's free will. It's not magic water. This, this water is not forcing a child to do something they don't want to do. So it's understood that later in life, that child will make a decision to be a Christian, to follow Jesus. And so we don't get hung up on when people are baptized, even though literal wars have been fought in Europe hundreds of years ago over that issue. We're going to rise above that. 
Right? We, we understand there are gray areas. And so that's the approach we take here at the well. And so the well honors the tradition that people come from. Baptism doesn't save anybody. So the meaning of baptism here, a couple things theologically that means, and then we're going to talk about eerie relevance for baptism today. So first of all, baptism means cleanse, uh, cleansing and a new start. First Peter 3 verse 21 reads, And this water symbolizes baptism that now saves you also, not the removal of dirt from your body, but the pledge of a clear conscience toward God. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Okay? Every human being with a conscience knows that we need a fresh start in life. None of us are perfect. And so salvation is like hitting the reset button and starting over. And, and it makes a clean slate. And we make restitution to people that we have hurt. It's not just about us and God, but it's about our relationship with other people. And the scripture states, he will remember your sins no more. And so baptism represents a new start, certainly for adult uh, baptism. So back in 2005, I led a, a, a ministry in Tempe. It was a house church movement of four people. I lived here for two years previously, from 05 to 07. And then I moved back to Ohio when the Great Recession hit. And then my wife and, and son and I came out here in 2012. And so back then, um, I led this house church movement of four house, church, uh, house churches. And there was a young woman, I'm going to call her Cindy, who went to college in Texas, and, and she essentially partied herself into rehab as a, as a freshman in, in college. And, and she ended up in, a, in a, a rehab facility in Phoenix. And uh, she was in recovery, but it was a harder struggle than she imagined. And, and being away from family and going through all of this, she was nearing the end of her rope. And, and at the same time, one of the people in our church worked at Starbucks, and he invited his coworker, I'll, I'll call her Amy, to, uh, to the house church uh, at that time. And she showed up for a few weeks, and, and it turned out she was Cindy's roommate. And so I heard this story a few weeks later. So here's what happened. One night, uh, Cindy was laying on her bedroom floor, crying. Moved here from Dallas to go to, to, go to this rehabilitation facility. And, and she was raised in church, raised with some kind of faith. And she was crying and praying because she was suicidal. It was just enough was enough. And she told me this story a few weeks later. And she, and she was face down on the floor, tears, and said to God, you, I need you to help me. I need something. I, need, I can't do this anymore. I need you to help me. She said, at that moment, there was a knock on her bedroom door. And her iPad didn't fall over the way mine did. And it was Amy knocking on the bedroom door. And she said, I just found this church if you want to come with me. And so she showed up and there was this amazing transformation in her life. She, she found hope. She plugged in. She became one of the leaders of that church. And she rededicated her life uh, to following Jesus. And I baptized her in a swimming pool in front of a, a big crowd of people. There were other people there too. There was a, a bartender from Martini Ranch. If you've been around this area for a while in Scottsdale, there were a bunch of people who were like regulars at Martini Ranch, like crowded around this pool. And there was just this feeling of like awe and the power of people who wanted to start over, including Cindy, somebody who had been crying out to God, I, I can't live anymore. 
And now being baptized is a symbol of a new start. So, start. so baptism means there's a new start. And when you think you're at the end of your rope, you're not. And there's hope. Baptism by immersion also symbolizes Jesus' death and resurrection. This isn't on the screen, but in Romans 6, Paul says, or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. So when you, you dunk somebody, you immerse somebody in, in the, the, the waters of baptism, it symbolizes dying with Christ, dying to the old life. And then when they come back out, it symbolizes being raised to new life, a new start. And then baptism is also a symbol of being adopted into God's family. And this will be on the screen, I believe. In Romans chapter 8, Paul writes, For those who are led by the Spirit of God are children of God. The Spirit you receive does not make you slaves, so that you live in fear again. Rather, the Spirit you receive brought, you, brought about your adoption to sonship or daughtership or being a child of God. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. Abba is um, an informal way. It's like saying Dad. Dad, Father, the Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. So I love that verse because Paul talks about what it means to go from somebody who is essentially enslaved in an oppressive religious system that is fear-based and moving into a realization that we are children of God. And you don't have to fear a good, loving parent. Yes, there's respect. The Bible uses the word fear God in the sense of respect, but you don't have to fear for your, you know, your life with a loving parent. So Paul talks about baptism as being a symbol of being adopted by God. And of course, there are people who, who are adopted uh, by families who, who take them into foster care and then adopt them. By the way, there are over 400,000 American children in foster care right now. And, and so adoption is this this idea that, you know, when you have a biological child, you're just kind of stuck with whoever's born. You know, you don't know who they're going to, you don't know who they're going to turn out to be. But when you adopt a child, you, you look at that child and you say, we want that one. You, you choose that child. For people who are adopted, I mean, there can obviously be a struggle at times with identity and belonging when, when they discover that. But the reality is, Parents who adopt a child, they look at that child and say, we want that one. If you're adopted, you are chosen. You are intentionally, purposefully invited into a, a relationship with a new family. And Paul says, that's what God does with us. Baptism symbolizes that we don't have to live in some fear-based, oppressive religious system that feels like slavery, where God is this taskmaster and it's authoritarian and I just have to... I just have to, you know, grovel in the dirt and, and just be afraid all the time. And then, and then there's this weird Sigmund Freud psychological thing that takes place where I, I, that religion makes me feel bad and I don't want to feel bad. So I end up projecting that onto the rest of the world. And that fuels religious fundamentalism where I'm good and everybody else is bad. And now we need to pass laws to make other people live according to my religion. So I feel better about myself. There's this, I'm not a psychologist, but there's this weird projection that takes place in authoritarian, fear-based religion. And Paul says, no, baptism is something, it symbolizes something different than that. You are adopted by God as God's child, and you don't have to live in fear. 
You, you can have a spiritual relationship with dad. And, and there are motherly qualities to God too that we read about in scripture. And so when Jesus was baptized by John, something amazing happens. We read about it in Matthew chapter 3 that I think is the perfect illustration of this and that it speaks so powerfully to the times that we live in. So let's, let's check it out here. Matthew 3, then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John. Perhaps like it was in that picture that we saw. But John tried to deter him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? And Jesus replied, let it be so now. It is proper for us to do this to fulfill all righteousness. Then John consented. As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. At that moment, heaven was open, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, so God's voice saying out loud, about Jesus, this is my son, whom I love, with him I am well pleased. Now, some of you have questions about miracles and that kind of thing, and that's fine. This is presented as a miracle here. Whenever we encounter a miracle in the Bible, post-enlightenment, post-scientific revolution, we tend to ask, did that really happen? In the ancient world, they're not asking, did that really happen? In the time the Bible was written, they're asking, what did that mean? And so when you encounter a miracle in the Bible, we want to ask, what does it mean? What is it there for? What's the meaning of this miracle? And so, of course, God is announcing that Jesus is the Son of God. That has all kinds of connotations because that was a title for Caesar. At the time, it's actually minted on the coins of the Roman Empire, Son of the Divine, a picture of Caesar, Son of the Divine. And so there are all kinds of implications to that title, but it was God announcing, this is my Son whom I love, and him I am well pleased. And here's the meaning of baptism. Jesus hadn't done anything cool yet. No miracles, no healings, no profound teachings, no Sermon on the Mount, no crowds, no feeding of the 5,000, no crucifixion. None of that had happened yet. Jesus was not known yet publicly. He wasn't famous. And yet, God says about him, this is my son whom I love, in him I am well pleased. Now, we're not Jesus, but in scripture, we're taught that those of us who want to follow Jesus, we're adopted into God's family, and we are children of God. We're not the son of God or the daughter of God or the child of God the same way that Jesus is, but we're adopted into God's family. And what that means is before you do anything cool, before you do anything impressive, whatever people around you think is special or they want you to do, before you live up to anybody's expectations, before you, you know, demonstrate what you're capable of, the meaning of baptism is God looking at you and saying, this is my beloved child, my beloved child whom I love and you I am well pleased. That's the meaning of baptism in one sentence. I'm adopting you into my family. I'm choosing you. And you are my beloved child. And in you, I am well pleased. It means you are a beloved child of God and you're a member of God's family. That's who you are. And so, I don't know what kind of family you come from. I don't know what your relationships are like. I don't know if you have a significant other. I don't know what that's like. But baptism means that you are a loved child of God 
And you're a member of God's family, and that is your core identity. That is who you are. Your identity is not based on what you do or what you have, what your salary is, what kind of car you drive, what your house looks like, what part of town you live in, where you come from. Your identity is based on being a loved child of God, and you belong in God's family. And hopefully as we grow older, you know, part of the maturing process is we get a stronger a sense of who we are, and you become more comfortable in your own skin and, and comfortable with your, your body and your appearance, hopefully, and with your strengths and your weaknesses and who you like to hang out with and who you don't, who you need to draw boundaries with and, and how you spend your time or becoming more comfortable with your sexuality or becoming more comfortable with questioning things and thinking for yourself and not blindly going along with the herd even with people who are you know, spouting violent rhetoric now in the United States, and we don't know where it's all going to go. You're not defined by any of those things. So if somebody asks you, who are you? you say, I'm, a, I'm a loved child of God, and God is pleased with me. I don't have to do anything special. It's just because God loves me. I'm a loved child of God. That's who I am. And for, you know, for some of us, that sounds like, well, you know, that sounds good in a sermon. That's, that's, a, nice little, that's a nice little point, a sermon point. And, and it may be right now that you're not in a place in life where that's really being tested. Where, where you're not having to really think hard about who you are. Somebody told me a story years ago. Nobody here. Um, this is years ago. I, live, I lived in a different state. And... and the person told me about an experience he had in a, in a relationship with his significant other, and things were not going well. He felt rejected and attacked. They had tried to make it work for years, and they were sitting in an event together. And, and he, said, he, he sat there knowing that their relationship could end. And that means a, a custody battle and all the things that were happening, and, and he felt unloved and and he said, in that moment, I could have felt crushed. I could have felt completely worthless, like the walls were just closing in on me, and, and, and everybody that I love is going to be alienated from me. And he said, I, I sat there silently repeating in my mind, I have dignity. I'm worthy of self-respect. I will not be defined by this. And I said, man, that's a gift. And of course... Men go through that experience. Women go through that experience. People who are non-binary go through that experience. That's, a, that's an experience common to humanity. When relationships don't go the way we want and people that we care about don't accept us as we are and, and, and you feel like it's all crashing down. There are times when it's not just a cute sermon point anymore. When, when you have to sit there and, and say to yourself, I am a loved child of God. It doesn't matter what my boss says. It doesn't matter what the people even close to me are saying about me. I have dignity. I have worth. My life is worth it. That is the thing often that enables people to get up off the floor and put one foot in front of the other again. It's the kind of thing you feel like you don't need it until you need it. And, and when you're really tested by life, you know, a few weeks ago, I showed an interview with Chris Martin from Coldplay. We took our boys to a Coldplay concert recently, and it was, it was really cool. They had a great time, and, and I read a little bit about him after the concert and showed an interview clip, and, 
And uh, maybe you know, you know, Chris Martin and Gwyneth Paltrow had a very public divorce a few years ago. And they've both remarried, and, and they committed to spending time with their kids together even after divorce. And so they will, they will go on vacations together with their new significant others and, and, and the kids to try to bring some sense of normalcy. I mean, that takes maturity. And, but he said something that I, I just really appreciated. He said, after my divorce, I didn't want to be the person who gives up on love because I had a bad experience and just grow bitter and I'm never doing that again. He said, I'm more impressed by the people who say, I won't be defined by this. I won't be defined by this. I won't let the most difficult, painful experiences of my life tell me who I am. I I won't take on the identity of whatever terrible experience I've had and, and, and just take that on to where it's not just, well, things didn't work out, but I'm bad, and I, or all, all men are terrible, or women are terrible, or whatever, just, and just take that on to where it defines my life, or, you know, a job didn't work out, or you had plans, you started a business, and things didn't go the way you wanted, or he's facing disappointment, difficulty. Maybe you have a new dream, you know, and there's a great resignation in COVID, and people started things, and it's hard, and maybe you're getting discouraged, and it's probably... The, it's one of the hardest things in life. See, I'm not going to be defined by that. I'm not going to take on difficult experiences as a part of my identity. That's not who I am. Who I am is I'm, I'm a loved child of God. And God is pleased with me. Not because I'm awesome or because I do awesome things, but because God loves me. I'm loved by God. And I'm worthy of dignity and respect. What if it's hard to believe? And what if it is a relational issue? I was jokingly mentioning the series we're going into, but, but if you're going through this stuff, it's not funny. And so a couple weeks from now, we're starting a new, a new series about strengthening relationships wherever they are, home, work, church, school, volunteering. And it's called Reconnect, Renewing Your Relationships in a World that Pulls Them Apart. We've gone through the strain of, of the pandemic, and we're still going through it. And this political anxiety in America, and then, and then remote work, and, and all of the things that are just adjustments relationally in our lives. Estranged relationships with people who see things differently than we do, and just the stress. Maybe there's been financial stress for you. Maybe you've been worried about sickness or a job loss, and the stock market's moving down now. And, and those, all those things strain relationships, and they can, they can pull us apart. And so in this series, we're going to talk about uh, what scripture says about creating healthy relationships. And part of that is us getting healthy individually and, and being able to renew ones that have been strained or pulled apart. And then there's times when you can't reconnect. There are times when boundaries need to be set. And so if you feel like your relationships could use some help, you know, join us a couple weeks from now, the day after, the week after serve day, we're going to start this new series called Reconnect. But if somebody asks you who you are, you don't have to answer with what you do or how, you know, the kinds of things you're interested in, whatever. You're not defined by those things, and you're certainly not defined by the difficult experiences in life. You are a loved child of God, and God is well pleased with you. That's who you are. That's your identity, and you belong in God's family. So I had an experience a few years ago that, that showed me uh, an experience of identity and belonging and worth that I'm going to tell in closing here. I led a mission trip to Nicaragua with an organization called Food for the Hungry. It's back in 2014, I think. And 
And to introduce us to the town, the national director of food for the hungry in Nicaragua had us all jump into the back of a pickup truck and drive through the town. It's kind of like a one truck parade. It was a little weird, but it was kind of, I come in peace and, and waving at people as we drove past their yards and people were like, okay, who are you? And they wave back and, and um, it was just a way of, of introducing us. And San Bartolo, Nicaragua, it's close to the border of, of uh, Honduras and um, you know, the people throughout the town were just going about their lives. There were farmers there, and, and we stopped and saw a man with a yoke of oxen. And I took a picture, and this is how he plows his farmland with these oxen. This is the way they did it in, in Bible times. And we got out and visited with him for a minute. And as soon as we got back into the truck, I mean, you know how some people will, like, keep their dogs on a leash while you're talking to them? And then once you go, they'll let them roam free again? Like, because they know, well, you might be afraid of dogs, so I'm going to keep them on a leash well, this guy, as soon as we got back in the truck, he let his oxen go. And his oxen started running to the truck. And we weren't going very fast yet in the truck. And the oxen were running faster than our truck was moving. If you want to feel alive, check out a couple of oxen running towards you. It was like, oh my gosh. And then, and then they, the truck actually took off and we outran the oxen. It was, oh my goodness. And so uh, we rode to an event at the school where we were going to meet with families that we were sponsoring. So they had you know, packets where you sponsor a child before we went on the trip, and, and, and lots of people sponsored children, and then we could go meet them face-to-face at the school. And it was, a, it was a pretty cool chance to meet them. And, and Hannah and I chose to sponsor a little girl named Glady. And we, we looked at her packet, and we chose her. It was a picture of her on the packet. And we had a bunch of these packets on the table, and we said, okay, we'll take that one. We chose her, and then we got to meet here, and here's a much younger version of me meeting with Glady and her mom at the school, and what we did was we poured a concrete pad outside of the school so the kids could eat lunch on the concrete pad and not in the dirt because they would would get their hands dirty in the dirt and then touch their food, and they would get worms and have diarrhea, and then they couldn't come to school, and so we just poured a concrete pad, and they had some, some sinks where the kids could wash their hands before they eat their lunch and not have to sit on the dirt. And that was our big contribution in this trip. But as we uh, met with our sponsor child and her mom, um, the national director for Food for the Hungry, Irvin, translated for me when I talked to Glady and her mom. And and Glady's mom is this super intelligent, big picture thinking, uh, big picture thinker. She knows what the community needs and what her daughter needs. She's a school teacher. I learned that she teaches first grade, and my wife teaches fourth grade, and, and, and her daughter was kind of shy and, and hiding behind her mom, just like you know, my sons did when they were that age, and it was just this experience of our common humanity, even through a translator, and she has one daughter. Her father left when she was six months old, so she's a single mom. I asked her what her daughter's favorite toy is, and she said it was a doll baby, and I asked how many dolls she has, and she said one. Like, why would she have more than one doll? One. You know, me bringing my American assumptions. And I found out later that the teacher's salary there is about 300 bucks a month. And I asked what she needs. And she, she could have said clothing or a TV or just cash. But she didn't say that. Through the translator, Irvin, and she didn't know who he was at the time. Uh, she said, we need a new library. We don't have enough textbooks. 
they have 50 textbooks for each subject and hundreds of students. So there aren't enough textbooks to go around. And the kids can't learn the way they need to. And we have some people here who did mission work in another country uh, providing books. So think about that. She said, we need books. And then I asked her what her hopes and dreams are for her daughter. And this is a rough area. If you, if, if you remember back um, the Iran-Contra times in the 80s, these were where the, the, um, the Contra people were fighting the Sandinistas. This is a war-torn area that's been through a lot. And I asked her what her hopes and dreams are for her daughter, and she said she wants more universities and a stable government. And she was pouring her heart out, and, and the director who was translating was already moved. He, he, he had tears in his eyes, and there was this moment. The three of us were, were sitting there, and I'm about to go to my comfy, cozy home in the southeast valley of Phoenix. And this mom seemed to have nobody to go to who cared about her plight and her hopes and dreams for her daughter. And she doesn't know, you know, is the government going to stay stable and provide a good future for her daughter? We wish that was a foreign concept, don't we? She didn't know what the future holds. And she said, I want opportunity for my daughter. I want textbooks, and I, I, want, I want her to be able to live out her dreams. And, and the director there, his, you know, his eyes were welling up with tears. And, and I said to her through him, it was kind of awkward, I pointed at him and I said, he's the national director for Food for the Hungry. And he looked at me, he's like, you're going to put me on the spot. I said, he can do things. Talk about, pre- I'm a pastor, I'm good at pressuring people to do things, like volunteer, you know, volunteering people. It's a gift. And he can do things. He can make things happen. He knows people in the government. He's like, man, come on, you know, not really. I, I could see in him, he was like, yeah, yeah. And, and then I, I couldn't pick up on the rest of their conversation because they just started talking in Spanish. And they, they had this moment where this mom, who was probably tempted to feel invisible, was getting to pour out her heart and her brain to this guy who had connections and the ability to do something about her fears and her hopes and dreams for her daughter. And there was this moment that God was there. And as though God were saying to this single mom, you are not alone. You are not abandoned. Your identity is not somebody who's struggling as a single mom and and worried about the future. You are my child. And you matter to me. And, and you have opportunities, and you, we can do something about your daughter's future. It was this powerful moment. You belong, of identity and belonging. And if all of us could get that sense that God is smiling upon us and connecting us with people that, that, are, that can do things about our future, and the truth is, God is smiling at us. This, you are my child. In you, I am well pleased. Jesus hadn't done anything awesome yet. But that's who God is in Jesus, and God loved Jesus as he was, and the same is true for you. That's why we're doing the serve day next week. When there are people who are struggling, and, and it's 110 degrees here, and people are trying to walk down the sidewalk, they're homeless, and how do people even live in this? These hygiene bags that you assemble next week are a symbol of hope to people. They are a statement to people. Your identity is not a homeless person. Who you are, you are a loved child of God. And God is pleased with you.
and people donated these items and, 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 and made these hygiene kits as a symbol of that. No, it's not, a, it's not a symbol with the same meaning as baptism, not the same power as baptism, but the meaning is similar. The, your identity is you're a loved child of God, and you belong. God says that to us. Baptism is a symbol of that. You're a loved child of God, and you belong. And we have the opportunity to hand that hygiene bag to somebody else and say the same thing to them. We're living in a time in which more and more people are falling prey to this ideology that, you know, we don't know where it's going to lead in the future of America. Radicalism and, and even violent rhetoric and, and mass shootings increasing, and we're living in an anxious time. But baptism means you and I are not abandoned to our fears, our anxieties, just like Lady's mom. We can pray, and then we can, like Erwin, uh, we can do something about it. We can partner with God to make the future better because we're empowered by God. And then God says to you, regardless of your family circumstances, regardless of how you feel, regardless of your significant relationships, whatever, even if they're in difficulty, you're not defined by your difficult experiences. That does not define you. It doesn't, it doesn't have to be a part of your identity. Baptism says you've been raised to new life in Christ. You've been given a new start. And you are a beloved child of God. And in you, God is well pleased. Let's pray. God, we thank you for communion and baptism, these, these sacraments that were inked into the scrolls for all time, permanent, as symbols of what it means to be in a relationship with you, as symbols of who you are, as symbols of who we are, who we are individually and who we are together. And God, especially in the times that we're living in, we realize how important identity and belonging is. As there are people who are intentionally trying to fracture the United States into, into tribalism with increasingly extremist ideologies and prejudiced ideologies and violent ideologies. There are people who fall prey to that because they don't have a strong sense of identity or a place to belong. God, when we know who we are and whose we are, we're yours. We're less likely to fall into hatred into viewing other people as the enemy. Having a strong sense of our, of, our, of our identity protects us from all kinds of lies and propaganda that are flying around in our country. And then more personally, God, we all bring our own stories into this place. And those who are joining us online this morning, we all have our struggles. We all have messages that, that we've received about who we are and, and some of them come from childhood and, and maybe seeing a counselor would be valuable. And some of us are, are recent. Jobs and, and, and marriages and, and maybe falling on hard times or trying to start something new and struggling and, and it's easy for us to start believing that those things identify us, that they define us that we're defined by our most difficult experiences. But the good news of baptism, God, is that that is not true. That's a lie. That's another lie that you free us from. When we realize who we are and whose we are, that we are beloved children of God. You are pleased with us no matter how the job performance review goes. You're pleased with us no matter what the bank account looks like. You're pleased with us no matter how relationships work out. 
You're pleased with us no matter what kind of car is in the driveway. You said to Jesus and you say to us, this is my child whom I love and them I am well pleased. That's who we are. And God, we thank you that that's our identity and that we belong in your family. In Jesus' name, everybody said.